that morning when the stone rolled back, the tomb opened and the earthquake shook the ground. In that moment, everything had changed. Sure, the cross, it had changed much. It was pivotal. It, after all, that is where the sacrifice had been made. It, it was there that God the Father had turned his back on Jesus and the Trinity was broken as God poured out his wrath, a wrath that we deserved for our sins on Jesus. It's there that we see the greatness of God's love in dying for us and bearing the pain and loneliness, the judgment on the cross, and there that Jesus became the way. But while the cross is central, it is the empty tomb that, that holds more hope. After all, it's the empty tomb that seals the deal. And since it's Easter, that is what we want to turn our attention to. So if you would, take your Bibles with me and turn over to the book of John, this time chapter 20. As you turn, let me give you some context. Back in John chapter 19, we come across John telling us that after Jesus passed away, two religious leaders, two members of the very council that condemned Jesus and brought him to Pilate, had taken upon themselves to secure the body of Jesus, prepare him for burial, and place him in a tomb. As a result, as we come to the start of chapter 20, Jesus' lifeless body is lying in a cold, sealed tomb. Well, we aren't told where they were gathered or what they were thinking. The disciples had, for several days, no doubt been in hiding, filled with fear that Jesus' fate might be their own, scared that the Jews who had intended on arresting them in the garden would attempt to hunt them down and do away with them as well. So you got to think wherever they were, that they weren't just fearful. It, it, that wasn't the only emotion they had. No, mixed with that fear, they were also likely filled with grief and despair. After all, Jesus, he had been more than just a teacher to them, more than just an acquaintance or a companion. He, he was their friend, their master. They had given up everything to follow him. For three years, they had eaten together. They had stayed together. They had heard his words and watched his miracles and had declared their allegiance to him. And yet now, all their hope, all their faith, it had been shattered. It died on that cross with them. No doubt for some, as they sat there still trying to get their head around everything that had gone on, the image of Jesus' battered body lingered in their mind, bringing about anger against the religious leaders that caused it, sadness at their grief, and frustration over how Jesus could have allowed it to end this way. They couldn't have believed it would end this way. They didn't believe it would have, but... It had, leaving them nothing but a recurring sense of utter helplessness, shame over their denials and desertion of Jesus. Over and over again, the, the, the events of the past week must have replayed in their mind. I mean, how did it come to this? Just a week before, they had watched Jesus enter Jerusalem as a king, and now he was dead. True, they should have known. Jesus had told them that he'd be handed over the religious leaders and scribes, and on the third day rise, but they hadn't understood it. If they did, you could be sure that as the third day came, that they would have been standing in that garden, hopeful and expected. After all, they had seen Jesus do countless miracles, but instead, not one of the disciples is found there. Sadly, they hadn't understood. They hadn't understood much of what Jesus had said. They had tried. They had understood enough to believe. In earlier days, Peter had even said to Jesus, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But by now, all their belief had faded. In fact, by the time we reach Sunday, we know the disciples had started to disperse, that they'd come to the conclusion that it was just time to head home and try to pick up what remained of their life. It would have been depressing. Their lives had been changed. Jesus had altered them. No longer were they simply fishermen or tax collectors. They had preached the coming of the kingdom. They had been a part of this exciting ministry, and yet it seemed to have all stalled out 
before it really began. What were they to do? The only consolation the disciples had was that what Joseph and Nicodemus had done, not only securing the body, but preparing Jesus before the Sabbath, finishing all that was customary. See, like today, they too had a process for how they dealt with dead bodies. Today, as we prepare for funerals, especially those that have open caskets, we remove blood, we close mouths, we do a number of things. Well, for the Jews of that time, when someone died, they would wash them and wrap them in linen bands, covering the body, but leaving the head and shoulders uncovered. They would cover the upper part of the head with a cloth that had been twirled about it, much like a turban. Nicodemus and Joseph had followed the customs, wrapping the body and then carefully inserting the over 75 pounds of spices into the folds of the linen that were bound tightly around his body. And when they were done, having finished the work, they rolled the stone in front of the tomb where he lay, and they laughed. Ironically, nothing is said. Not one gospel writer records what they did after that. Perhaps they went and found the disciples. Or maybe, like the rest of the Jews, they simply moved on, celebrated Passover like everyone else. One thing is for sure. In Israel and Jerusalem, on that Passover, Jesus must have been a topic of conversation. So most likely expected it would soon pass, and life would just return to normal. The religious leaders even had Pilate post guards at Jesus' tomb to assure it would. Well, in the midst of this, while the disciples are starting to pick up the pieces of their lives, and the Jews had all but moved on, we come across a group of ladies that weren't ready to do so. and said they were determined to see it through to the end, determined to honor Jesus and make sure everything was done right in his burial. And so they set out for the tomb. And that is where we pick up the account. If you would, you can follow along as I read, starting in verse 1 of chapter 20. John writes this. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw the stone had been removed from the entrance. She came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still don't understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was a gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. She said, do not hold on to me. For I have not yet returned to the Father. Go and said to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the other disciples with the news. I have seen the risen Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. 
on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's their sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hands into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your fingers here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Here John tells us that with the Sabbath over, as Sunday morning came, a group of women headed out of Jerusalem to tomb, bringing spices to anoint Jesus' body. Now, truthfully, we don't really know whether they were uninformed and didn't know what Nicodemus and Joseph had done or whether they just wanted to honor Jesus more and had bought more spices. But what we do know, based on the accounts of the gospel, is that Mary Magdalene, Mary the, the mother of James, Salome and Joanna, and maybe several others, were so intent on anointing Jesus that they didn't even wait till the sun had risen before they set out. You imagine as they walked out of the city they, in the dark, they must have discussed how they were going to handle the tombstone that would have been in front of the tomb. Perhaps Mary suggested there might be a gardener to help. Maybe Salome thought the four of them together, they stood a chance. Regardless, they concluded that they were just going to take their chances, that somehow they'd be able to move it. One thing is certain, they didn't expect to see the tomb open when it came into view. In fact, you can imagine them stopping at the sight of it, and the sight of it stopping them dead in their tracks, leaving them stunned, afraid to go too close, like someone coming on a crime scene, not wanting to disturb it, afraid of what they might find if they do. For them, a new set of questions instantly flooded their minds. Who would do such a thing? Who would move the stone? Why? What was the point? No doubt some thought, couldn't they leave his body alone? I mean, they've already crucified him. How dare they? Regardless, in stunned disbelief, they turn to each other and they decide that someone needs to go and let the disciples know. And Mary Magdalene volunteers to run back into town to find them. Well, with Mary gone and the day dawning and no doubt not seeing anyone that might hurt them other than the guards that seemed to be stunned, the other gospel tells us that the women grew bolder and decided to look into the tomb. And as they did so, they discovered angels there. Luke writes, In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. Matthew records the words of the angels, Do not be afraid, for we know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he lay, then go quickly and tell his disciples. You can imagine their excitement as immediately they made their way back to town as instructed. Well, meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, Mary had found Peter and John and told them they had taken the Lord. 
Immediately, Peter and John, they set out for the tomb, running as fast as they could, perhaps wondering whether or not Mary had it right or whether Mary had even gone to the right tomb. Somehow, these two groups missed each other. And John, at running, Peter arrived at the tomb first and peered in. When Peter arrived, he, he didn't wait for John to enter the tomb. He was standing there. He rushed right past him into the tomb. And Peter stood there examining the grave cloths. John tells us that Peter went in the tomb and saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head that was lying folded up by itself. Now, you need to know that John, as a gospel writer, often left out details. And so when you come across a detail like that, you've got to ask yourself, why would he include that? Why would he include the details about how the tomb was? Why not just say the body was gone? And John had included that Mary was with other ladies when she went to the tomb. He hadn't bothered to include the earthquake or the stunned guards, but he felt a need to tell us how the tomb was found that day. So why? Well, I believe for John that these details were important. So important, he didn't want us to miss them because they were evidence for him that Jesus had truly raised from the dead. You see, for John, how the tomb was found was proof. And that's the first point that John wants us to see today. He wants us to see that Jesus was truly raised, that Jesus really did rise from the dead. Have you ever stopped to ponder what would have happened that morning, what must have happened that morning before the earthquake came and rolled the stone away? Have you ever thought what you would have seen if you had been able to be in the tomb that morning? Wondered what you would have seen if you had been there the moment that Jesus was raised from the dead? I can tell you one thing's for sure. You wouldn't have seen Jesus stir, open his eyes, sit up, and begin to struggle out of the bandages. Truth, that's the kind of thing you would have seen if, if, if Jesus had somehow hadn't really died but had revived in the coolness of the tomb, as some people have suggested. But given what we've studied on Friday, the intensity of the torture that Jesus had endured, the, the flogging and the cross, even the spearing of his side, do you really think that Jesus could have survived all that and then revived in the tomb and then removed the tightly bound bandages around him? Besides, the Romans were professionals at this. Clearly, they knew the difference between someone that was alive and someone that was dead. Still, I guess that's what you would have seen if Jesus had survived. But not only that, you would have seen the same thing if Jesus had raised, been raised from the dead like Lazarus had when they had to remove the cloths that bound him. But Jesus wasn't raised like Lazarus was. After all, Lazarus' body was healed, but that didn't mean that Lazarus wouldn't die again, that he wouldn't die of old age or some other sickness. Clearly, he must have, or else we'd all know of him. Now, Jesus' resurrection was much more. So that is not what you would have seen, nor what the story of the tomb tells. And said, if you'd been present in the tomb at that moment of the resurrection, you would have noticed either the body of Jesus would have seemed to disappear or was changed into a resurrection body and passed through the grave cloths and out of the sealed tombs, just as he later was able to pass into rooms with doors that were locked and closed. John Stada, one commentator, wrote that the, the body was vaporized, being transmuted into something new and different and wonderful. Another commentator wrote that the body would have been exhaled, passing into a phase of being like that of Moses and Elijah on the mount. Regardless, with the body instantly gone, the linen cloths would have collapsed due to the weight of the spices that were in them and be left undisturbed where the body had been. Now, truthfully, we don't know exactly what happened, but by the description that John gives, there's no evidence that Jesus sat up and unwrapped himself. 
because the grave cloths were lying there, all of them. Not one of them was disturbed, all in order. The cloth that surrounded his head without the weight of the spices might have even regained, remained, retained its shape as Peter found it laying separate from the body by the space where the Lord's neck and shoulders would have been. Seeing it all, John immediately got it. You can hear him say, don't you see, Peter? No one has moved the body or disturbed the grave cloths. They're lying exactly as Nicodemus and Joseph left them. Yet the body is gone. It isn't stolen. It hasn't been moved. It must have passed through the cloths. Jesus must be risen. After all, if Jesus' body had been stolen, the grave cloths would be missing, wouldn't they? No one would have bothered to unwrap him before they took his body. And even if they had replaced the cloths where, where they had been and somehow moved the stone, the spices would have been scattered all over the tomb. There were 75 pounds of them, Peter. But look around, there isn't anything. Everything is in order, but the body is gone. For John, that was enough. And in that moment, he believed that Jesus had risen. Still more than that, in that moment, he believed that Jesus must have been exactly who he said he was. Truthfully, it's what John had been writing towards from the very beginning of his gospel. It's why he'd written the entire gospel the way he did. He was driving at this point, one point that the resurrection proved. You see, it was all well and good for Jesus to be a rabbi, a Jewish teacher with a following. There were many that were. In fact, it was common in that time to have disciples. Many did. It was not even uncommon at the time for miracles to happen. Others had and would perform them, whether that was Elijah in the past or Peter or, or Paul in the days ahead. Now, while all that was good, John wanted to be clear that Jesus wasn't just a good teacher or a, a godly prophet, but instead God in the flesh, the Messiah and Savior, the one we should put our faith in. John even tells us much in verse 31, writing, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In other words, everything that John had written, he wrote with that goal in mind. Every word, every sentence to prove, to illustrate, to persuade you and I and every other reader of the truth of who Jesus was. Not sure? Just for a minute, think through the Gospel of John, the book of John. From John's opening words, in the beginning was the Word, was Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of man. To the declaration of John the Baptist, who a few verses later pointed to Jesus as he passed by and said, Look at the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Or the testimony of John's disciples that at that point leave John to follow Jesus, who are so impressed that one of them, Andrew, immediately sets off to find his brother, Peter, and tells them they've found the Messiah. And another, Philip, who goes and finds his friend, Nathaniel, tells them they've found the one that Moses wrote about in the law. In fact, even Nathaniel, who's skeptical at first, after hearing Jesus declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. And that is just the first chapter. But it doesn't stop there. Now you could consider John's comments in chapter 2, when after turning water into wine, it reads, Jesus thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Or Nicodemus' words to Jesus in chapter 3, as he approaches Jesus and declares, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. Or John's words in the same chapter, that the Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. 
Or you can look at chapter 4 when Jesus approaches the woman at the well who, who says to Jesus, I know the Messiah is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. And Jesus responds by saying, I who speak to you am he. Or look to the fifth chapter and read Jesus' words, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. A statement that so upset the Jews that they wanted to kill him. In fact, John writes, For this reason the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And then in chapter 6, after Jesus feeds the 5,000, and the crowd concludes that he must be a prophet, Jesus declares himself to be the bread of life, having been sent by God. Jesus said, for my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son looks to me and believes in me shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last days. I tell you the truth, he who believes has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Or you could merely consider Jesus' statement in chapter 10 where he says that he and the Father are one. A statement the Jews tried to stone him for. And that doesn't even begin to include him raising Lazarus from the dead when only God had the authority to raise over life and death and to raise those from the dead. Or when he rode into Jerusalem upon Sunday as the crowd declared, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Or Jesus' words to Philip when he asked him to show him the Father in chapter 14. And Jesus said, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. In fact, I've only scratched the surface. As every chapter pointed to who Jesus is. Don't miss it. John crafted his entire book to point to this event. I mean, what event other than the resurrection could substantiate all those claims? Jesus, he had already performed countless miracles, even raised the dead, yet others had done that. He had already astounded them with his understanding of God's word, yet even more prophets whose book riddle our Old Testament had, did, had done so. Even his claim to be the Messiah was not unheard of. In fact, history tells us that many had claimed to be the Messiah. Many still claimed to be the Messiah. No, well, that was all good. It didn't seal the deal. It didn't prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was exactly who he could claim to be. Sure, it posed the question, question that time and time again we see the disciples wrestling with, trying to answer. But others had done enough to, to pose the question, to bring them up. But when it came to the resurrection, that was different. During Jesus' life, he claimed to be equal with God. He said that God would raise him from the dead three days after his death. Claims that were either the ravings of a deranged man, blasphemy, or God's way of substantiating Jesus. Nothing but the resurrection could verify that Jesus was, that he is the very, that he was God in the flesh, that he is God himself. And so that is what God did. Well, because of that, there's no denying the importance of the resurrection. I know that that's why over the centuries, people first attack the cross. And when they're done attacking the cross, they move on and attack the resurrection. After all, even those who don't believe somehow sense how important this event was. Don't miss it. Jesus' resurrection, it proves that not only was he capable of dying for us, being a perfect sacrifice, being God in the flesh, but also that it worked. You see, if Jesus had only died, the question would still remain, did it work? Had Jesus really been everything he claimed to be? And if so, was his death accepted by God for me? I mean, just for a minute, suppose he'd sinned, hit his brother, told him his truth, was bitter, 
In that case, he would have been dying for his own sins rather than ours. So how do I know it worked? When three days passed and Jesus rose, you could know. Jesus was exactly who he said he was. He was able to die for us, was able to rescue us from darkness, able to redeem us from the kingdom of death and Satan, and adopt us into the family of God, forgive us and restore us. Without the resurrection, Jesus wouldn't have been who he said he was. And you and I, well, we'd still be dead in our sin. Destined to never be right, never be justified with God. Ari Tori tells a story about four men who were once climbing the most difficult face of the, the Matterhorn. There was a guide, a tourist, a second guide, and another tourist. They were all roped together. Unfortunately, as they went over this particularly difficult spot, the lower tourist lost his footing and went over the side. The sudden pull on the rope carried the lower guide with him, and he carried the other tourist along also. These three men were dangling over the cliff. But the guide in the lead felt the first pull of the rope, and he drove his axe into the ice, braced his feet, and held fast. The first tourist then regained his footing, the guide regained his, and the lower tourist followed. They went up safely. Well, so it is in this life. As the human race ascended the cliff of life, the first Adam lost his footing and tumbled tumbled headlong over the abyss. He pulled the next man after him, the next, and the next, and the next, until the entire race hung in deadly peril. But the second Adam, Jesus, kept his footing. He stood fast. So all of we who are united to him by living faith are secure and can regain the path. That is what the resurrection proved. It proved that if we come to Jesus and and connect him by faith, we can have hope. And, and so here, John, he highlights the orderliness of the tomb, the, the linens, everything that pointed to the reality of it, hoping that like him, we'd get what had happened and believe. See, if nothing else, this chapter, this book was meant to force you to choose, decide what you're going to do with Jesus, whether you will see the evidence and believe or not. I'm not saying you can see the linens today or the empty tomb, but that doesn't mean that you can't see the evidence. You can see it in the evidence in the wake of his influence, an influence that split time in two. You can see it in the way it affected our world and science, justice, healthcare, welfare. But more than that, you can see it in the way it affected those who followed him, those who had seen him risen, who would lay down their lives for them rather than recant their faith. The very ones who based their beliefs on what they had touched and heard and seen. You can see it in the lives of those who follow him today. Well, John has written to confront us with that question. What will you do with the evidence? Will you believe or not? So that's not all that John wants us to get. No, no, it's not only does he want to point us to the reality of the resurrection, but John, he also wanted to be clear that what believing would look like. He wanted them to know that the resurrection would, have, would change how we would relate to him. That Jesus' resurrection had changed how his followers would relate to him. And so it's to that question that John turns his attention as he continues to record the events of that day. You see, after taking a look at the tomb, look around, Peter and John, they return to the city. No doubt in their sprint to the tomb, they probably left Mary in the dust and were even unaware that Mary Magdalene was headed back to the tomb. So they didn't bother to wait for her or they left her there. Regardless, she was left there all alone. Now, truthfully, we don't know a lot about Mary Magdalene. The Bible tells us that Jesus had sent seven demons out of her. Early church tradition identified her with the unnamed sinner of Luke 7 who anointed the feet of Jesus in the house of a wealthy Pharisee. But that was probably simply a misunderstanding because Mary of Bethany did that later. 
At some point, for some unknown reason, people started to assume that Mary, she had been a prostitute before Christ saved her. In fact, by the 7th century, Magdalene was used as a word to describe Reformed prostitutes. But we truthfully don't know whether that was her story. What we do know is that Jesus had saved her from something terrible, and she'd learned to love him as one of his followers. Note that she'd come to the tomb. That's why she was there in the first place, out of her love. Jesus was her teacher, her rabbi, and her friend. She had been there during the crucifixion. She probably had heard the crowd cry, crucify him, seen the judgment of Pilate, walked behind the procession to Calvary. You can imagine what she must have felt when she saw Jesus fall under the weight of the cross or saw them draw the nails through his hands. And yet, somehow, despite that, she stayed through it all. And at some point, as she watched Jesus die or after he passed, she decided that she was going to buy spices to honor Jesus, and the others had agreed. The events probably had been swirling in her mind for days, and now she found herself at the tomb all by herself. She had to be frustrated. I mean, she had been going back, she'd been going back and forth from the city in the dark or semi-dark for what must have seemed like hours, and there were still no answers to what had happened for her. It's no surprise that she was emotionally spent from all she'd been through, and so she breaks into tears. So overwhelmed is she that she doesn't seem to know what is going on when she ventures into the tomb. After all, while she sees the angels, she doesn't make any attempt to treat them as you would treat angels. Instead, so with tears filling her eyes, it's as if she doesn't recognize them. So when they ask, woman, why are you crying? She simply answers, they've taken my Lord away. I don't know where they put him. She turns, she sees another man standing there. Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for, he asks. And Mary responds with one of the most touching verses in Scripture. One commentary writes this. She was still thinking in terms of a dead body. She had been weeping for three days and three nights, and her heart was empty. She had passed through unutterable anguish and had been for many hours without sleep. She had been three times out to the tube and twice back to the town. Now she offered to carry the full weight of the body of a man plus the hundred-pound weight of myrrh and aloes. She wasn't but she didn't think of this, for she loved Jesus, and though her faith and hope were dead, her love was strong. And so she offered to do the impossible. So Mary, she just suspected he was a gardener, so she turned away until she heard Jesus call her name. And instantly her eyes widened, and the tears that had been running down her face in sadness turned into tears of joy as she recognized his voice. And light broke through the darkness in her mind. Now, it's interesting, at least it is to me, this is the first appearance of Jesus. Jesus, he could have first appeared to Peter and John, his beloved disciples who were just there. That's probably what I would have done, but not Jesus. He could have come, chose to go to those that had buried him or to all the disciples first, but instead he chose to appear to Mary. And the culture and a time when the testimony of a lady meant nothing, where it wasn't even admissible in court and was highly suspect, Jesus picks as his first witness a lady. Of course, he would appear to more women after this than Peter and then the disciples. But the first person to see the risen Savior was Mary. Now, I don't know, but have you ever asked why that would be? I have. Perhaps it was just to show that Jesus had come for all, but my guess, best, is, best guess is that it was meant to signify that things had changed and that women were to be treated as equal in the kingdom. Regardless, John tells us that as soon as Mary realized who it was, her first response is to try to hug him, to hold on to him. And Jesus, he, he doesn't allow it. It's an odd response, really. After all, it wasn't as if Jesus didn't allow touch. Later, he even invited Thomas to touch. So what was going on? And why would he say that? 
Why of all the appearances was this so important to John? Well, some think that maybe while Jesus had raised, he hadn't yet completed his sacrifice and presented himself to God the Father. But I doubt that. Instead, I think it's more likely that Jesus was just making a point. You see, everything had changed, and Jesus wanted Mary to know it. I mean, think about it. When, when Mary saw him, in, in the back of her mind, she had to be thinking, well, maybe things will go back to normal. Maybe Jesus will start preaching again. We'll, we'll pick up where he left off. Or maybe she thought he'd finally become king and overthrow the Romans. Regardless, Jesus' plan was neither of that. So they couldn't hold on to him. Jesus had, had already told them that, telling them that he was going to the Father. And it was a good thing that he was doing that because he could send another, another counselor like him to live in them. So here when Mary wants to hold on to Jesus, Jesus wanted to make clear that things were not going back to the way they were, but instead that things had forever changed. And Jesus' words, go tell my brothers, tell them that I'm returning to your, my Father and your Father, to my God and your God, indicates that as well. As Jesus was, was saying, they've been made part of the family, part of God's family. Everything had changed. Before Jesus died, we were God's enemies, at, at, in essence, at war with him. But Jesus had changed the way we relate to God. He had brought peace and made a way for us to be forgiven. Mary, she had been on this emotional roller coaster for days, but now she was at the top of it, and she wasn't even going to allow Jesus' refusal to hold to her to disturb that. And so off she went on another cross-country run to tell the disciples. So that's not all that Jesus' resurrection changed. John highlights, and I notice as well, briefly, it also affected and gave them a task to do, which is the last thing we want to notice, that Jesus' resurrection left us as his followers a task to do. Notice verse 21. Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Jesus passed his mission on to us. In other words, if you are his followers, your mission is to be patterned after his. Well, think about that for a minute. I mean, what does that mean? Well, I can tell you one thing. It means that just as Jesus went into the world, that you and I are to go into the world and teach about the kingdom of God. Jesus said he didn't come for the healthy, but he'd come for the sinner. Over in Mark 2, it reads, Jesus said to them, It's not the healthy you need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And yet, despite that, sadly, far too often as Christians, we have retreated away from the world to where it's nice and safe, non-threatening, and we yell at the world from the sidelines the truth of the gospel, somehow thinking that that's all that's required of us. Well, not Jesus. He went to where the sinners were. He hung out with tax collectors. He reached the lost. He engaged them and took the gospel to them. And here we're being told to do likewise. But not only that, Jesus' call here, it also means that we have a purpose a purpose that isn't of this world, a purpose that is more important than the now, more important than the job I have or the material things I own or the opportunities I possess, a purpose given to me by, and to you by God himself. See, so like it or not, if you're a believer today, Jesus has given you his mission. So let me ask you, what are you going to do with it? Well, the disciples, they apparently immediately got that because no sooner have they been commissioned that they go and find Thomas who wasn't there to tell him. Today we refer to people as doubting Thomases, but Thomas didn't doubt anything. No one said he just outright didn't believe. He was obstinate. Unless I put my fingers in the nail holes in his hands and my hand in his side, I will not believe. Thomas had no intention of believing, and so he makes this outrageous demand. He might as well have said, I'll believe it when pigs fly. He had no intent of following. It's amazing, really. Thomas had no right to demand anything. And yet, regardless, Jesus provided him what he needed. 
But you know, more amazing than that is that Jesus continues to do that today. Reaching down and answering prayers, meeting people, showing himself, even though he isn't obligated to, to people like Thomas who, who demand something of him. Thomas, he moves from outright disbelief to the greatest testimony in the gospel when he says, my Lord and my God. Thomas becomes someone who believed, whose disbelief was overwhelmed by the evidence and believes. And that is what John's hope is for us that read the book. Here in John 20, John reminds us the importance of the resurrection. He points to the proof of it, how it changed everything and how we can trust the evidence. I can hear someone say, but Chad, you know, I've heard this before. I've heard this every Easter since I was, was born. So what difference does this make? Well, if nothing else, if you're a believer, the resurrection should cause you to remember who it is that is your Savior, that He is God in the flesh, your Creator, Redeemer, and Friend. The commission He gave you as His followers here should compel you to go and share it with others. And the testimony of Thomas should leave you in wonder of a God that would stoop down so low as to meet someone in unbelief and remind you that God sought you out when you too were a sinner and continues to meet people where they're at today. And all of that should cause you to worship Him and rejoice, especially on Easter. And if you're here or listening, and you've never decided what to do with Jesus, you haven't decided whether to believe or not, this passage calls for you to decide. To decide what you'll believe. Whether you'll choose to believe the evidence as John recorded and accept Jesus as your Savior and the Son of God, or reject the evidence and refuse. And that is the choice that I too leave you with today. What will you do with the empty tomb? Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for a day that we can set aside to remember the resurrection of your son. An event that gives us hope. An event that guarantees that we can have eternal life and be right with you. Lord, if there's someone listening, watching on TV or here that does not know you, we pray that you would reach out to them today and that they'd come to know you. And for those of us who do, that we live in light of your your resurrection, Lord. In In your name, amen.